I imagine most of you are people who love choices, and we live in an age of choice. It didn't always used to be that way, though. Uh, life was simpler. If you wanted, for instance, to buy some ice cream, you had chocolate, vanilla, strawberry. Things have gotten a little more, uh, we've gotten a little more choices since then. It was in 1945 that Baskin Robbins decided they had a new idea. How about instead of three flavors of ice cream, we have a different flavor for every day of the month. And 31 flavors of Baskin Robbins was born. But it just continued to grow since there, uh, since that time. Uh, in, uh, in Japan, for instance, you can buy uh, ice cream flavored like uh, wasabi, uh, like soy sauce, uh, sesame seed, squid ink. Um, there are a host of different flavors, and uh, we have choices. And most of the time, we love choices. I personally love choices. Uh, without our age of choice, I would be uh, at the mercy of pants that don't fit me, of shirts that never, don't come anywhere near my, my wrists, and uh, I, would be, I would be left in, in an even more difficult position than I am, I am currently. But all the choice affects us. It affects the things that we do because we begin to look at the world through this, this lens of infinite choice. So uh, when we, when we uh, want to pick and choose uh, uh, food, we, we want to go to a buffet because they have a huge selection and they'll advertise the, the size of the selection that they'll have in a buffet. And we love that. I love that. Uh, we love... We love Amazon and online shopping because it gives us infinite choice. There's no end to the number of variations of a particular product that we can get. Uh, we, want, we want choices uh, with our partner. We, we, uh, people will now swipe right to, to, to decide this is the person that I would like to be with. And, and we approach our relationships with this mindset of choice. And we bring it to our relationship with God as well. Uh, today, people, we, we say we shop for churches. Uh, people will uh, pick and choose what they believe. Uh, they will bring that same mindset to, uh, to uh, how, how, we, how we relate to God and what we choose to accept and what we choose to not accept. And it gets in the way of some of the things that God wants to do in our lives. Uh, we've been in this series. Uh, today is the final, uh, the final chapter in a series that we've been doing, talking about following God into blessing. And as we get to today's chapter, it really confronts our age of choice. Uh, it, it helps us uh, reset, for, perhaps for some of us, or at least rethink uh, for most of us. Uh, the attitude that we bring to, to, to God in treating him a little bit like Baskin-Robbins, uh, our attitude that we can bring to the Bible in swiping left or swiping right on the commands and uh, principles that he's given us. And we do that all in the hopes of laying hold of the God, and, uh, the God who wants to bless us, and the God who wants to speak into our lives and minister to uh, to us in, in blessing. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me. Uh, we are in Genesis chapter 17. 
I'm going to read from verses uh, 1 down to 14. And what we see here is God speaking uh, into our age of choice and inviting us into a covenant relationship marked by blessing, by devotion, and finally by a sign. Genesis 17, verses 1 to 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is the word of God. Now, as we look at this passage, we see a God of blessing, but it is not the God of Baskin-Robbins. We see a God who invites us into a covenant relationship, but he doesn't ask Abraham to swipe right. It is a very, uh, a very certain and definite uh, God who invites us into a relationship in a very certain and particular way. God invites Abraham into a covenant that is uh, a covenant relationship that is marked by blessing. And it is a picture to us of the kind of way that God wants to relate to us, the, the way that he wants to bring blessing into our lives, but to do that in the context of a covenant relationship. Now, the word covenant is not not something that we toss around a lot. It's not familiar to us, and frankly, it's not particularly attractive to us. But it appears some 10 times in just 14 verses here. In verse 2, God talks of making a covenant. In verse 7, he speaks of establishing a covenant. But in an age of choice, covenants feel too restrictive. A covenant feels like it's going to tie us down and, and limit our options, and we like choice. We, we like to, to have variety. We like to not be tied, to, tied down too restrictively. It's one of the reasons that marriage isn't po- as popular today. It's, its popularity is, is waning. 
It's one of the reasons that membership is, is not uh, as popular today. We like options. We want to keep our options open. We don't want to be tied down, too restrictive. We live in a hookup culture, but the passage here reminds us that God relates to us on the basis of a covenant. Now, in Abraham's day, a common form of covenant where it was, if there was a powerful and influential uh, nation and king, that king could offer a covenant, uh, an alliance of sorts, to some weaker neighboring nations. The idea was that that king would graciously go to the uh, neighboring nations and offer protection, blessing, would, would be a, a strength and a help to otherwise vulnerable nations around him, and he would expect loyalty and obedience as a result. Something similar to that kind of covenant is, is going on here. In, in, with, the, with the nations, the, the, the neighboring kingdom could say, uh, we surrender, we, we, we want to enter into this covenant, and we want to accept uh, your protection and help and blessing, and we offer you our loyalty in, it, in, in return. They could, however, say, no, we're going to go it alone. We don't need your protection. We don't need your help. We don't, frankly, want to be committed to you. But in so doing, they would then be vulnerable to the other nations around them, other warring nations who would otherwise want to attack a weak and, and otherwise defenseless nation. Remember, in that covenant, there were two choices. You surrender and offer your loyalty, or you go it alone and you take your chances with the uh, enemy nations around you. Two choices, chocolate, vanilla. There, there was no infinite number of, of ways. And, it, and it's important because people today want to come up with their own ways of, of relating to God. They want more choices and options for who God is like. There, there's the God of our imagination. We imagine God to be like this, and everybody has their own, own version of who he might be and what he might be like. There is an infinite number. Of, we, we want to write the rules in terms of how we relate to this God, even if we agree on who he is. And uh, here we're, we're, we're seeing a God who just offers a covenant, just offers an invitation to relationship with him. As much as we don't like the idea of covenant, we still want God to bless us. And, and you'll see this, and you, you see this in your own life, we see this in, in our culture today. People want and expect God to bless them, but the idea of relating to him on a covenant relationship is, uh, is, is unattractive. We're into no-strings-attached relationships. We're into free and open relationships. But the warning and encouragement of God's word this morning is he doesn't relate to us like that. God doesn't hook up. He wants to bless us, but his blessings come through a covenant. In verse 2, God talks of multiplying Abraham greatly. But again, it's in the context of a covenant. In verse 4, he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And it's a picture and a reminder to us that God is the one who can truly bless our lives 
But his blessings come through a covenant. He doesn't hook up. He doesn't want an open relationship. He wants to enter into an exclusive relationship with us. While God's covenant asks that we surrender on his terms, it's hard to overestimate how how great the terms are that he comes to us with. He really does want to bless our lives. He really does want to multiply the blessings in our lives. In verse 1, it tells us that Abraham was 99 years old when God came to him to make this covenant. That's important to us because it reminds us that it's been 16 long years since the end of Genesis 16. It has been a very long time, and Abraham has had a long time to think about his own failings as, as, as an individual. He will think about his failings in his lapse of faith and seeking to, uh, in, in taking a second wife and seeking to uh, make an heir through uh, his servant Hagar. And at this point, after those 16 long years, you might think, well, God's going to come and blast him, right? Like God's going to at least come and scold him or penalize him or put him in probation or somehow get him in the penalty box. Maybe he's going to revoke the the promises that he's made to him, revoke the offer of blessing that he made to him. But instead, God comes to him, and instead of scaling back the blessings, he expands them. He promises even greater blessings. Verse 5 says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abram means honored with respect to the father. It's a word that points back. It's saying, Abram, he had a famous father. He had a noble father. And having been born to that noble father, he carried with him a sense of dignity and respect and status. But God came to him and said, your, name is no lo- your life is no longer going to be defined by the past. Your life will now be defined by the blessings of the future that I hold out for you. Abraham pointed forward. The name sounds like father of a multitude. And as you hear that name, you picture Abraham a 99-year-old childless man having to gather up his workers and explain to him, explain to them that from now on, I want you to call me father of a multitude. Like, they would be snickering and thinking, this is absolutely ridiculous. And yet, raise your hands if you can remember the name of Abraham's father. One, one of us can. Thank you, Beryl. <laughs> So one of us can remember the name of Abram's father, and that's where his name was initially pointing backwards. But every Sunday school child's favorite song is Father Abraham, right? God's blessings redefined his life. They changed the the course of his life. They changed his identity, his sense of of value and worth. It was was a, a, a total redefinition of who he is. And when God comes to us with this offer of a covenant relationship, it is that promise of blessing, that his covenant blessings can can redefine our lives and change us in profound ways. 
In the new covenant, God comes to us, and for those who enter into that new covenant by faith in Jesus Christ, we have and we receive a new identity. We are no longer seen as sinners, but we have become saints. We have become the redeemed, the ones who have been cleansed and purified. We are called uh, the, the, the children of God, friends of Jesus Christ. And those names then take root and begin this process of, of changing who we are. We have received new identities. I wonder if you've ever thought about names. Do you think that names have any value? Hussein Bolt, if his name wasn't Bolt, do you think he'd be just as fast? There's actually research been done into this, and uh, an NYU professor named, by the name of uh, Adam Alter, he says no. He, he believes that the name makes a difference, and he gives some interesting evidence. He, he lists uh, a number of people. The Chief Justice of England, for instance, his name was Igor Judge. A, a contemporary of his, another colleague who worked in the Court of Appeals, his name was actually Justice Laws. Uh, he points to an Israeli tennis player named Anna Smashnova. And he was saying, this woman was born to play tennis. Uh, he talks about an Australian footballer by the name of Derek Kickett. And he's just saying, the name helps shape them. Now, this is just with the names that parents give them. But God's names affect us even more. I have to mention, you can get a little carried away with this, because my name, Paul, means shorty in Greek. And my last name is Sadler, and I have no particular skills in leatherworking. But, but the fact is that the names that God gives us begin to redefine us, because it is him at work in our lives to make the new identity a practical reality in how we, how we live and walk and work. So God invites us into a blessing, but he doesn't hook up. The blessing comes through a covenant relationship. Blessing is a, how God is God's part of that relationship, but devotion is ours. God invites us into a covenant relationship that's marked by devotion. I want you to see how this gets played out in, in, in the passage here. In verse 1, it, it lays out the heart of devotion that God calls for in this covenant relationship. He's, God says simply, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. It's interesting because there's no long list of rules. The Ten Commandments aren't mentioned. They would come later, but there's no hint of them here. It, it is just an invitation to show your loyalty to the one who invites you into relationship. There's a, a declaration of who God is, and then the charge, walk before him and be blameless. The, the phrase walk before him comes from the, the image of a shepherd. Often the sheep would, would be in a flock. The shepherd would often walk behind them, and it was just the knowledge of his presence and the um, occasional sound and call of his voice, that would be enough to have the sheep moving in a direction that they knew was, uh, that would bring pleasure to, uh, to the shepherd. When God calls us to walk before him, that is, uh, that, that is the, the, the call and the invitation. 
that that is how we express our devotion in this covenant. The command to be blameless warns against picking and choosing God's commands. Because that's our... That, that is our default uh, setting, right? We, we want to pick this one I can agree with, this one I think I could, I could handle, these ones over here, I'm just not sure I'm ready for yet. The, be, the command to be blameless isn't the idea that God thinks, particularly in the history we've seen with Abraham, he's not under the impression that there is going to be automatic perfection immediately, we're not aiming for 50% either. We don't pick and choose the way that the, the commands in the, and, and the precepts that we respond to or not respond to. He calls us to be blameless before him, to walk before him in that. So God's heart and his will doesn't just inform our lives, it rules our lives. It, it is the, the guiding and controlling force in, in how we make the decisions. We don't just include God in our plans and decisions. He, he is the one who takes the lead. He is the one who is in control in this relationship. Now, you might read that and wonder, how on earth is Abraham going to take all this? How is he going to respond, right? Verse 3 supplies the answer when it says, Then Abram fell on his face. I don't know if that phrase is meaningful to you, but it's a response to grace because Abraham knew God could have given up on him. He knew that God could have just cut his losses and said, this guy just keeps blowing it. I I don't have time for this. And so 16 years after an abysmal failure of faith, he knows if God's coming to him and still offering him these great promises of blessing, he knows that this God is full of grace and goodness, and, and, and any offer and invitation from this God needs to be responded to wholly and wholeheartedly. And so he falls on his face. Uh, this, this posture is expressing, with, expressing physically what he is feeling emotionally. Surrender, devotion, commitment. This particular posture is still, it's a part of ancient Japanese uh, uh, and and, and much of Asian culture, but it's still practiced in in various uh, parts of the world today. Uh, Evan and Caleb, when they went for judo training, they would begin and end every single class on their knees with their head uh, down, down facing the ground in a deep bow of respect to the head sensei, teacher. In ancient times in Japan, a samurai comes into town, everybody drops to their knees. Everybody's head is to the ground. It's a position of submission. It's an act of commitment. And God says, I come to you in blessing, but I don't hook up. My blessings come through a covenant relationship. I know that you're not bringing anything to the relationship. You don't have a lot to offer. None of us do but all I ask for is your devotion. We respond to God by falling on our face. And so it is that, that picture of, of worship. I wonder if you've ever learned to fall on your face before God. I wonder if you have ever responded to his invitation with that wholehearted sense of submission 
the, the, the submission that says, you're God in this relationship and I'm not going to try and compete with you. You're the one, you are the greater king. I, I am the defenseless person that had nothing to contribute to this relationship. I offer you my loyalty. It's all I've got. Now, that's not how you relate to the Baskin-Robbins God. When the Baskin-Robbins God comes to you and asks you to do something, you say, what are my other options? What, what else, what else could, 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 uh, uh, could, could, be, could be one of my choices here? I, I, I won't recommend the book, but uh, Daniel Bellelli um, really describes the mindset of the, the Baskin-Robbins God. He wrote a book uh, entitled Create Your Own Religion, a how-to book without instructions. And he just was, was trying to communicate. Uh, this, this was his philosophy, and he knew that in our culture, in our age of choice, his philosophy would find some traction. So uh, he, he wrote in that book uh, the following. The word but is a three-letter stroke of genius. It keeps things in perspective. It prevents me from turning too rigid, too self-righteous. It reminds me that hardly anything in life is black or white. When, Abram speaks to speak, when God speaks to Abram, invites him into a covenant relationship, he falls on his face in submission. When God makes that same invitation to Daniel Bellelli, he says, yeah, but I want to keep my options open. Don't want to be too rigid here. Not sure I want to go all in. Feels too restrictive. I wonder which one of those is closer to how you relate to God. I, I will find my own life falling short of an ideal that I, I know in my heart that I am committed to. And yet, as I look back, I went through this period of, of really struggling with, with God. As a, as a college student, I would, I would bargain and debate and, and, and struggle to, uh, to lay hold of him. But when I finally became convinced that, that the God of the Bible was real and that his son, Jesus Christ, has, had risen from the dead, I knew that I could no longer relate to him with a clipboard. I, I knew that he must be God and I must not be. I knew that I couldn't compete with him. I knew that I couldn't argue with him or debate with him. He, he gets to be God, I don't. When God comes to us, he comes to us with blessing. Those blessings come through a covenant relationship. He doesn't hook up. He doesn't want an open relationship. All he asks for is our devotion. He wants to invite us in and we respond by falling on our face trusting him and surrendering our lives to him. Now, most covenants have signs and symbols to communicate whether you're in or whether you're out. Or the covenant of marriage, for example, you have a wedding ring. It, it, it's a way of communicating to the people around you, hey, this person has made an exclusive commitment to someone else. They're off the market. It, it's also a way of speaking to the person that, hey, we have... Uh, We've, we've made a commitment here. It, it, it's a reminder and a call to, to purity and, and devotion and, 
and loyalty. If you want to keep your options open, that feels restrictive. The ring feels like it's kind of limiting your options. The covenant relationship that God invites us to is marked by a sign as well. Like the wedding ring, it's a way of expressing whether you are in with God or whether you're out. In the Old Testament, and here with Abraham, circumcision was the non-negotiable mark of the Old Covenant. In Genesis 17, it gets prescribed for the very first time, and it would become, and it is, a place where uh, the, the, the people of God under the Old Covenant and the Jewish people today continue to look back to. In verse 10, God tells Abraham, every male among you shall be circumcised. In verse 11, he calls it the sign of the covenant between me and you. And when you think of this particular sign, you think there could have been far more convenient signs you could have chosen. A a, a ring would have been far less painful and a little more beautiful, right? Like, and yet, symbols communicate something. They tell you something about the, the... uh, the, the, the covenant that you have entered into. They are, they are deliberately intended to, to, to speak and communicate and express something. God's covenant with Abraham was to bless him with offspring, with descendants, to multiply them greatly, to, to make a, a, a great nation. God was seeking to set apart a people through whom he would bring, through, bring the Messiah. And so he needed a pure people and a distinct people through whom his promised Messiah could come. And, and so circumcision was a way of expressing that. It was a way of pointing to that and reminding the people of that. And verse 14 makes it clear that the sign wasn't optional. In verse 14, God says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. I read this and I think this is God's version of Beyonce's single ladies dance, right? Like God's offering relationship, he's inviting them into it, but if you don't want to put a ring on it, he's not going to hook up. He, he, he wants an exclusive relationship. He wants a relationship that is marked by purity, that is marked by devotion and a right sense of who it is that this, this covenant has been entered into. The, the sign didn't purchase the covenant. It, it didn't really achieve anything in the covenant, but it was a powerful and important sign of that covenant. The danger with circumcision, like anything else, was that it could become an empty ritual. You could do the sign, but not maintain the reality of that sign, what the sign was supposed to be pointing to. And that was... Obviously, never God's heart. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Physical circumcision was pointing to an inward heart circumcision, a, a sense of loyalty and devotion that started on the inside and not just resting on the outside. Now, some of you will be relieved to hear uh, 
the application of our, of our message this morning is not for everyone to get circumcised. That is no longer a mark of the, of the new covenant that God has entered into us with. Uh, in fact, 1 Corinthians 7.19 says, circumcision doesn't count for anything. It was a sign of, of a covenant that God made with Abraham and is not the sign of the covenant that God enters into with new covenant believers. But God still doesn't hook up. He still doesn't want an open relationship. He still relates to us with a covenant. And baptism is the mark of that new covenant. It's a sign. It, it, is, it, it is not a way of achieving that new covenant, but it is an important, important symbol of it. Uh, baptism is just a Greek word that means immerse. That's all it is. It's, it's a, when, you, when you take something and you submerge it in water, that's the word baptize. And it became the mark of that new covenant that God calls us to. In Acts 2.38, Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The new covenant isn't a miraculous promise that you will have many descendants. That was Abraham's covenant. The new covenant isn't a miraculous provision of a piece of land in the Middle East. That was Abraham's covenant. What the new covenant is, is a promise of forgiveness of sins for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And it is a promise that God, by his spirit, will come to live in our hearts and transform us from the inside out. We still fall on our face when God comes to us with that invitation of relationship. We still fall on our face before him in devotion. We fall on our face before him in repentance. Repentance is that way of saying, this path that I have been walking on outside of you and not with regard to you, I want to get back on that path like one of those sheep that's walking before the shepherd. I recognize that that is the place of blessing. That is the place that I was created to walk. We turn from the life that says, I want to keep my options open. I'm just, I'm, I'm just kind of playing things around a little bit. want the choices. We put our trust in Jesus Christ alone. We enter into an exclusive covenant with him by faith. I wonder where that leaves you this morning? Where does that fit with where your life is at and how you're relating to God? Have you entered into a covenant with God through faith in Jesus Christ? Or is there a part of you that's still trying to get his blessings without the relationship, without confirming that this is a, a covenant that you're entering into with him? Don't get confused by our age of choice. God wants to bless us. He wants to enter into a relationship with us that, that, that is marked by blessing, but he doesn't hook up. It's a covenant, and he in, invites us to it. If you've entered into that covenant with faith, through faith in Jesus Christ, put the ring on. The, the call is to receive the sign that marks that 
the, the reality of that, of that commitment. I, I read this and I think if a 99-year-old man can take a piece of flint to his foreskin without anesthetic, surely, surely we can submerge ourselves in water for a few seconds, right? Like, you, you think of the cost that this would have involved for him and how little that God asks us for today. If you have entered into that covenant and if you have put on the sign, lay hold of the blessings that God promises. Live out that new name, that new identity that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Take time to think of all that he's done for you and yes, fall on your face before him in worship. Recognize who he is and how how good he's been. Walk before him the way a sheep walks before a shepherd. And let his presence guide you as you live to honor him and bring glory to his name. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your offer of relationship. We're stubborn partners and we know that we don't have much to offer. But we can fall on our faces. So we do so as we worship you as the high and mighty God. You be the king and we'll be the servants. You be the shepherd and we'll be the sheep. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning struggling to find the courage to enter into that covenant with you, would you draw them to yourself? Would you give them the grace to trust you? and help them to put a ring on it. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.